Hello, Modern Law Library listeners. This is your host, Lee Rawls, and I just wanted to let you know that the following episode was recorded prior to public revelations of alleged sexual misconduct by Judge Alex Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit. I wanted you to know this in advance of listening because he is referenced during the upcoming interview. We now cut to our show with Orly Lobel. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today for this special holiday edition of the Modern Law Library, I'm here with Professor Orly Lobel, the author of the new book, You Don't Own Me, How Mattel versus MGA Entertainment Exposed Barbie's Dark Side. Professor Lobel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, it seems to me that you have a somewhat unique set of qualifications to talk about this topic. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your own background? Yes. So the most obvious is that I'm a law professor at University of San Diego, and I teach and write about both employment law and intellectual property law, and I do a lot of legal theory and also practice. I am the author of an award-winning book that I'm very proud of um, from a couple of years ago that's called Talent Wants to be Free. And there I argued that we are really what we're doing recently is getting more information, more knowledge fenced than we wanted to when we think about intellectual property. So more than just what we've defined as patents and copyright has been now locked up and I've been calling it cognitive property, the ability of people to create, to move in the job market, and to pursue their passions in their professions. And I think that probably when people think about intellectual property, they may think about you know certain kinds of technology, but the first thing that pops in mind is probably not going to be children's toys. <laughs> How did you get drawn to this story, and can you tell people a little bit of the background behind this enormous, you know, decade-plus-long legal battle that happened? So this is a fascinating story. I came across in different ways when I was... um, It happened here for over a decade, actually. In, In some ways, it's still ongoing here in Southern California, And it really is similar to some of the battles that we've seen in Silicon Valley and uh, a little bit on Wall Street. But the wonderful thing about it is it's, it's really about not technology, as you say, but about the culture we create, about the toys we grew up with, the icons that we have, that we all have some reaction to. So, um, you know, Barbie is very much uh, kind of part of the story a hero, an anti-hero in the story. And we all have, I think, visceral reactions to Barbie as women, as parents, as children. We kind of grew up with her. Several generations have known her. And the story kind of goes behind the scenes of how do we create these toys, the movies, all the, the culture, the kind of more fun images that we see all around us. And what was the legal battle over? Obviously, Barbie is one side of this fight. What is the opposing side? Um, Why did this come to court? What's the story behind the story? So our story begins with a shy, creative, um, very passionate designer who works for Mattel. And he's a designer for Barbie. Barbie 
as a doll and as a toy has been dominant for basically six decades since she came out in the 1950s. And the story really goes back to uncovering a lot of how that happened and a lot of juicy facts about where where did she actually come from, some details that maybe Mattel didn't want the consumer to know about. But the story begins in our current time where Carter Bryant, this shy designer, um, is frustrated because there's really very little innovation that he sees going on in this big conglomerate. And he has a lot of creative ideas. He has a lot of designs that he has been thinking about, um, has been working on for a long time, even before he started working for Mattel. He's always been sketching, jotting around all these ideas for dolls and fairies and kind of iconic uh, women superheroes. And the battle becomes alive, it becomes a courtroom drama when Carter leaves Mattel and sells an idea for a competing doll to a competitor, MGA, which develops this new doll, Bratz, and for the first time ever in the 90s, since Barbie came about and since she's dominated the toy shelves, suddenly in the new holiday season, all the kids, all the girls want a Bratz doll, and she's basically knocking off Barbie off her pedestal, as Judge Kaczynski says in in one of the decisions on the cases. One of the things I appreciated in your book is that although you weren't able to talk to Carter Bryant, you really gave a sense of him, which I assume you got through his courtroom testimony and interviews with other people, and really took me back to remembering that time period when Bratz dolls came on the market. And, and I, I was born in 1980. I grew up playing with Barbies, and I really enjoyed that detail and the context that you're explaining about the corporate machinations that were happening behind the scenes that I knew nothing about. Were there things as you were researching this book that really startled you about the toy industry? Yeah, many things. And and I think it startled also the judges and the jurors and the attorneys that came into the case um, because it really, as you say, um, I ended up interviewing many, many people behind the scenes, including executives on both sides, uh, executives from Mattel and MGA, the very colorful CEO, founder of MGA, who is an immigrant, privately held company entrepreneur. He um, he cares very much about that status. And going behind the scenes with, with these two companies, you start finding out about questionable ethical practices. So the story begins with uh, a battle over invention and over copyright, trademark, intellectual property ownership. But as the legal battles unfold, it becomes much bigger than that. It becomes about corporate espionage and the stealing of trade secrets in toy shows and in fairs. Um, It becomes about How do we manufacture these toys? How do we market them? I went back to the history of basically the invention of modern marketing. If if you've seen Mad Men and, uh, you know, we see sort of the history of advertisement, a lot of the realities are that consumer psychology was developed 
in the toy and entertainment industry very much and is what we live with right now on, you know, how do you merchandise, how do you use Freudian psychology to sell toys, including, you know, questionable toys to young children and just kind of shaping all of our needs for consumption and for purchasing. And just to give our listeners an idea about the kind of sort of outsized venom that occurred during these legal battles, and these are complex, so I would suggest you pick up a copy of You Don't Own Me to get the full story. But for instance, this is a memo that came out of Mattel. And uh, you quote it in the book, and I'm just going to read it for our readers quickly. Fight fire with fire. No other brand in history is as emotionally meaningful to girls and women as Barbie. In spite of this, a rival-led Barbie genocide rapidly grows. All the talent, power, and history behind the Barbie brand should be focused to fight back. Product packaging, marketing, and sales must be launched that is brilliant, tactical, aggressive, revolutionary, and ruthless. This is war, and sides must be taken. Barbie stands for good. All others stand for evil. I love your reading. (laughs) Oh, you know, and I'm, I'm reading this and I'm thinking about these groups of ruthless corporate adults. And then I'm thinking about the target market, which is very young children. And it's it is just so fascinating to get a look behind the scenes at this kind of, you know, ruthless corporate speak. But it's about toys. Um. It's about toys, but it's about billions of dollars uh, of industry. And it does become really ruthless. It, it also becomes irrational. As, as you read this memo, you can see how emotional it is. And one of the things that really made me write up this story and, and tell this story uh, was that I saw these huge corporations that are established and their armies of attorneys that represent them uh, still making all kinds of choices that actually backfire, that are counterproductive, that um, are bad for business. Not only, not only are they harmful for you know, our culture, for creativity, for progress in, in the arts, um, you know, kind of counterproductive to our whole idea of why we, we have intellectual property to promote arts and sciences. But also, they end up being really not good for, for the company itself. And so I wanted to go behind the scenes and understand the, the psyches of some of these actors. Um, one of the things that I noticed was that, you know, Barbie has this very cold persona and very controlled image. Uh, she has been with us for so long, but Mattel very much cares about, you know, setting her image in a very specific way, uh, going after any musician or artist or film producer that wants to depict her in another way. And it was interesting was that the executives at Mattel were almost similar to her cold persona, whereas Bratz, when she came out on the market, it's not a coincidence, as as you can see when you read the story, that somebody who's sort of an underdog, Isaac Larian, who is the founder of this smaller competitor, basically a startup, and he holds it privately. He's very controlling of his own company. He's a very colorful, very outspoken. He is an immigrant himself, so he really cared about 
having dolls that are multi-ethnic rather than, you know, kind of the very white um, history of, of Barbie. And so in some ways, you see these adult men, as, as you said, you know, playing with, with their own toys and, you know, the minds and hearts of, of children and almost mimicking the art that they're, they're putting out in the market. So you pointed out that these legal battles were taken up by Mattel with the thought that they were defending the company, which had been, you know, losing sales for a long time, that this was necessary for their survival. But at the same time, they ended up getting so caught up in this legal battle that other things fell by the wayside, such as focusing on innovation themselves. They lost a licensing deal that they had for Disney dolls to Hasbro. When you are doing your own research, when you're thinking about, as you said, talent wants to be free, talent management, if you could speak to the legal departments and the CEOs of these enormous companies, what would be your message to them? Yeah, so that's absolutely right, that we have to think about our human capital in very smart ways today. So the talent wars are very heated. Really, these days, you know, manufacturing doesn't happen here. These big brands, really all they are are brands and marketing. They're about innovation and about the relationship with consumers. And so... I think, you know, most leaders understand that they have to have the best people and keep those people motivated in order to to stay relevant. And what I have seen happening, and it's this is really not just in the toy industry and entertainment industry. This is this is why this story is so universal. It's really in every industry. A lot of times there's a tendency to use the law as this sledgehammer to sort of an easy way of trying to keep your dominance and trying to get the competition out of the market to uh, create these impediments, really huge impediments to new entry and to smaller competitors. But in the end of the day, in, in the long run, it's very clear that what a company really needs to do to maintain its dominance is to continue to be relevant and to continue to innovate. So when we see, um, you can even take, you know, other examples. When you see, for example, Steve Jobs as the great innovator of the 20th century, you know, the, the later part of the 20th century, being so creative at the beginning when he's founding Apple, but then over the decades, a little bit losing sight of that and investing more money, actually, in, in some at some critical point in, in his leadership at Apple, there's sort of a flip where he's investing more resources and energy to fight the competitors in, in, in the courtroom versus to innovate and create new technology, then we should pause and we should ask whether the law is serving the you know the best function for our society and for the businesses themselves. Now, so much of this book, you know, we're talking about feminism, we're talking about employment law and contracts and who can say what and what you owe corporates. And it seems like this is a conversation we're having in the culture at large as a lot of these sexual harassment claims are coming out. And some of the Behavior by various executives in this book seems super questionable to me, even though it happened decades ago. What do you think this has to teach us about 
what is reasonable to include in an employment contract and what we really should be taking a close look at and deciding whether or not it's acceptable to ask of anyone. Absolutely. That's a key question because what we're seeing right now with a lot of the scandals that are coming out with sexual harassment and all kinds of misconduct in the workplace is that employees oftentimes are afraid to speak, not just because there's all the psychological and social consequences of speaking out, but because they're actually legally bound, whether it's enforceable or not enforceable, they have signed something that suggests that they can't speak out, they can't report things they see in their work or things that happened with their previous employer. And really, this is the flip side of what Carter Bryant went through, where it's just become so standard that employees sign these generic contracts that include non-competes, NDAs, assignment agreements, innovation assignments of anything that they invent. And we see this pattern of people either staying at a company where they're unhappy and being part of a code of silence that's very problematic to our workplace culture, or they leave and they do it in a very sneaky way and kind of hide from their previous employer. Um, You can see this happening in the book as well, sort of meeting in shady places in order to not get into that risk of, of litigation. So, you know, there's different fronts on how we can address this. I think we should think very closely as companies, actually, what we really need to require from our employees and what can backfire, what is unhelpful. I think the best companies actually understand that using carrots rather than sticks in order to motivate their employees and in order to retain them and to recruit them is the best way. You don't want to keep unhappy people and you don't want these scandals to eventually come out and and really hurt the reputation of the company. I also think that on the policy side, and and I've been doing a lot of work on this, as I mentioned with my um, previous book, Talent Wants to Be Free, and with my scholarship, I was invited last year to the White House to speak about these issues and to ask whether we've gone too far with non-competes. In a lot of our states, including California has been at the frontier of not allowing non-competes, but still allowing a lot of these other de facto non-competes to exist. But a lot of other states, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Michigan, all have right now initiatives to push back on some of these clauses that we are requiring our employees to sign. Finally, to switch gears, I'd like to ask you a more holiday-related question. This is going to be coming out in December when a lot of us are going to be buying toys for the children in our lives. When we're doing so, what do you think we should keep in mind? Now, you, in addition to having done all this research for the book, and I believe that your mother actually used you when you were a child in some of her research about toys Um, and you yourself are a mother, what do you think about when you are shopping for toys and choosing things for children to play with, given all of your research and your own personal experiences? So I think when you read the book, you will never look at a toy again in, in the same way. And really, for me, as you said, I became an early critic of the toy industry when 
my mother used me as an actress in her psychology experiments. She filled me and my friends playing with boy toys versus girl toys and then asked subjects all over the world, how do they perceive us, what kind of gender qualities we have, uh, you know, all kinds of emotional stuff. So when I got back to the toy industry through this story, it really made me think a lot and, and know so much more about how important play is for our development. And so one of the things as as a mother of three girls, for me it's most important to think about choices, to increase our choices rather than narrow them, to think very seriously about whether we need a pink shelf versus a blue shelf in, in the toy stores, whether we need to have gender-specific toys, how are we channeling our kids to, to different choices. I have a, a clear bias that I think that we should all buy lots of books as gifts for our kids and for ourselves. So that's a great choice always. But of course, toys are really important. And as you'll read in the book, I go back to some of the history of play and the history of dolls in general. You know, it turns out that not only Homo sapiens play with dolls, but even chimpanzees in the wild, they play with sticks as toy swords and as toy dolls. And that's it's part of our nurturing. It's part of our nature. But we really should be careful not to allow, you know, like a one conglomerate to shape all of those choices for us. And we should think very carefully about what is best for our development, for our emotional, social, and engineering, physical skills, and and just, you know, take play seriously and then have fun with it. Well, Orly, if our listeners are interested in getting in touch with you or picking up any of your books, is there a website or social media account that they could go to or follow to learn more? My books are all on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and your local bookstores. I have a website, and I'm going to be doing some readings in various bookstores. I'm always very happy to hear from listeners, so my contact is is out there on my faculty website. I loved how you read an excerpt from the book, but this week, actually, the Audible version of the book is coming out as well. So you can also listen to the book, and you can download it on Kindle. Review it, spread the word. I think it's really fun because I really wrote it because I thought the story is so cinematic, and now we're sort of in talks of turning it into a movie as well. So it's uh, it's really the courtroom meets... Hollywood and Southern California and the culture we create. And for our longtime listeners of the ABA Journal, Judge Alex Kaczynski is a major character in this book. So any fans of Ninth Circuit jurisprudence, uh, you will get to read a lot about him. So Professor Lobel, thank you so much for speaking with us. Uh, Again, her book is You Don't Own Me, How Mattel versus MGA Entertainment Exposed Barbie's Dark Side. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Modern Law Library. Please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.